Great, thank you very much. Okay, um, so uh, we are going to be talking about climate change today, and um, partly because, well, this last two weeks, the news media has been full of COP26, uh, which stands for the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, number 26, and so it's the 26th time that they've um, met. I think this is the third time they've met since the Paris uh, Agreement. And so we thought, well, what, what does it matter? What does it mean um, for us as followers of Jesus to pay attention to it? Surely that's not our responsibility. You know, we're here to bring people to Christ and that's it. That's our main job. But does, does this climate change uh, mean anything to us? And how do, we, how do we address it? So this, this church is full of some amazing people. Looking around the room here, some amazing people um, that are in, in this place and some not in this place. Rachel Reynolds this week is, has got a pop-up shop in John Lewis selling her art. It's amazing. She's, you know, art is work is on Rachel's Facebook page. Doing a great job. Shout out to Tom Waterton who has just been awarded IBM Master Inventor for creating an, an idea to help the early detection of Parkinson's. Fantastic, some amazing people around this room. And we have two amazing people who are gonna help us this morning. Professors Ivan Haig and Merrick Schrockosch. So let's invite Merrick and Ivan to come and join me here. two experts in this area, and so I'll get them to introduce themselves uh, to you, uh, and uh, they can explain what they do, and then we will go into it, looking at this issue scientifically, theologically, and practically, okay? So that's, that's our, our focus for today. So, so maybe, um, Ivan, you could introduce yourself, and then Merrick, if you could introduce yourself, that's probably great. Yes, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm married to the lovely Fiona. I'm father to Ren. And work-wise, along with Merrick, I work uh, down at the Oceanography Centre. Now, although we share the same building, we're in two separate organisations. So I work for the University of Southampton School of Ocean and Earth Science. So 50% of my role is teaching and management, and then 50% of my role is uh, doing research. And I specialise in sort of sea level rise coastal funding. I, have a, a I lead a team of about 10 people, PhD students, postdocs, uh, working in that area. Hi, uh, I'm Merrick. Um, I'm not sure I need much introduction, but I'll say a bit about myself. My wife is up there, and my daughter and her husband are just in front of her. <laughs> my granddaughter's wrote in the children's work. Um, so uh, I'm, I work at the Oceanography Centre. I'm on the other side of the Oceanography Centre. Uh, I'm not going to go into the, the uh, details of the split, uh, but there are two parts. Um, uh, my main research is to do with the role of the oceans in climate change, so I'm really a, what's known as a deep water oceanographer. If it's not four kilometers deep, it's not really the ocean. Sorry, Ivan. <laughs> 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 but I'm interested in things like how the currents move, temp uh, move heat around and how um, uh, that influences the atmosphere and our climate and weather. Great, so I just thought it'd be useful to have some input from these guys as we talk about climate change. So, so Ivan, let's start with you. What's, what, what is the problem that we are seeking to, or the world is seeking to address? Maybe just give us some, some um, headlines. Yeah, sure. 
I've just brought along a, a few slides I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> so this is sort of climate 101. So the sun's energy comes into the Earth's surface. Some of that is reflected back into space. Some of that hits the Earth's surface and warms it up. And then at night, if you look over to the right-hand side, uh, some of that energy leaves us infrared. It hits the Earth's atmosphere. So you can see that sort of dotted line around the top is the Earth's atmosphere. Now, some of that heat can escape out into space. Some of it gets reflected back into the Earth's surface. And, and that's the greenhouse effect. And it's, it, think of it a little bit of like you lying in bed uh, with a nice blanket over you. That blanket is trapping the heat. If we can go on to the next slide, please. Now, now what's happening is we've been doing a, a massive experiment, probably the biggest experiment in the world over the last 150 years. We've been pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. And think of that a little bit like putting on a second blanket. You can see now that arrow pointing back to Earth is much, much bigger. Less heat is escaping through the atmosphere. More heat is rebounding back into Earth and heating up our planet. Now, if you can go on to the next slide. Um, now, this is one of my favorite uh, images. Ha has anyone seen this image in the background, the, the blues to reds? Uh, those are called the warming stripes, and it's been produced by a, a friend of American uh, and mine at the University um, of Reading. And it's become the sort of iconic image, really. Um, so on the left, every single one of those lines is a year, um, going from 1850 through to today. And each line represents a temperature. <clears throat> and what you can see is over time, uh, the, glo uh, the, the, the global average temperature has been warming from sort of cooler blues uh, through to the reds. Now, it's actually quite scary. When you look at the 20 hottest years, of the 10 hottest years on records, all of those have occurred in the last 20 years. And actually, the nine hottest have occurred in the last 10 years. And probably this year, uh, all 10 hottest years will be in the last 10 years. Now, if you go on to the next slide, if we just look at this from a slightly different perspective, you see those fantastic warming stripes there. So we've heated the globe by about 1.2 degrees. Now that doesn't sound like much, but, but actually it is quite significant. Now some people might say, well that, you know, surely we've been hotter in the past. But if we go back, uh, another slide please. If we go back 2,000 years, you can really see that what we've done is really massively increase the global temperature. And, and if you go on to the next slide, um, Oh, actually, I took that out, sorry. <laughs> but if we look back a million years, um, this 1.2 degree, degree change is completely unprecedented. We've really enormously heated up the planet. Um, next slide. And these are just some of the things that, that heating uh, does. It changes uh, weather patterns. We're getting stronger storms. We're getting more droughts and wildfires. Um, we're getting a uh, significant increase in the melting of land-based ices. We're seeing glaciers all around the world disappearing. And then when you come on to American, my expertise, um, one of the crucial things that I'm looking at is, obviously, as you heat the planet, um, more ice makes its way into the ocean. We're getting thermal expansion. The, the level of the ocean is going up. So that's just a, a very brief summary, Billy, of, of what, what we're seeing.
Yeah, sure. So I want to pick on two examples that we've been looking at. So I have a project at the moment uh, working in the Solomon Islands. And if you go on to the next slide, a lot of people don't know where the Solomon Islands are. Now, I couldn't resist. So where's my pointer? It's not going to show up, is it? <laughs> go on to the next, next slide. So the Solomon Islands are these little chain of islands uh, just to the sort of northeast of uh, Australia. So those are the islands there. And this is one of the, one of the poorest countries uh, in the world. Now one of the most certain consequences of, of climate change is sea level rise. The, the sea levels have risen by about 20 centimeters uh, over the last uh, 100 years. That doesn't sound like much, but we've seen a, a real increase in storms as well, sort of leading to coastal flooding. And we've been working with this community, if you go on to the next slide, uh, in Willandi. So this community, um, as far as we can tell, were, were actually sort of sea gypsies. They traveled down the coast and about 100 years ago, they found this sort of sand bank and they built this community up and it's grown from about 100 people to, to well over 1,000 people. But in 2009, this entire island was washed away by a storm. If you go on to the next slide. And this was all that was left of the island. Um, this was taken uh, a few weeks later. Only two houses remained, so a thousand people uh, were displaced. Now, if you look in the back, well, if you look here, you can see that there is high land. Um, but that was a com this, this community were a completely different tribe. And so there's been a lot of problems. As they've all had to move over to the mainland, but there's been a lot of sort of racial issues a lot of issues and in fact we went back one of my PhD students went back a year later a, a couple of years ago if you go on to the next slide and that whole island now has just completely disappeared so this is just one example a very very poor community very poor island and I'll just give you one other example another area where we've been doing a lot of work is Vietnam so if you go on to the next slide <coughs> and particularly the Mekong Delta so around the world, about 500 million people live on deltas. They're some of the most fertile places in the planet. They're absolutely, on one level, incredible places to live. On another level, they're, they're not so great to live because they're very, very low-lying. So what happens is a, a big river will bring down lots of sediment. It will build up this very rich, fertile plain. So this is the Mekong in Vietnam. And on the left, you have population density. 20 million people live on this delta. Some of the poorest people in the world, often sort of living on uh, farming. On the right, you have the height of the land. And you can see almost all of those 20 million people live on land that's only a meter uh, above sea level rise. Um, now, what's happened is it's, it's climate change has really aggravated this, along with the sort of building of dams upstream. But we're seeing this, these areas flooding more and more regularly. So if you go on to the next slide, here's just some images that we've we've collected from colleagues of mine in, in Vietnam. Now this delta, 40% of the world's rice comes from this delta. It's, it's incredibly fertile zone. But yeah, we're seeing, um, so all, these are just two very simple examples, Billy, but uh, unfortunately it's often the most vulnerable, the most poor, um, often it's um, women as well that, that, are, that, that are at the heart of sort of regions being affected. And if you take the Solomon Islands, they, they're one of the lowest carbon emitters. You know, that they're not responsible for this, mm. and yet they're, they're the ones that are being affected yeah. first. That's great. Thank you, uh, Ivan, for that. Um, so, Merrick, we'll, we'll move on to the theological aspect, as well as uh, various 
other things that Merrick does. He has a degree in theology as well, and so um, he's probably the cleverest person I know. <laughs> so, Merrick, um, the Bible tells us very clearly that the earth will be burned up. So what, why do we have to worry about it? So theologically, what does the Bible have to say? Okay, so that's great, because that's where I'm going to start. I'm okay. going to start with this misconception. So next slide. So 2 Peter 3 is uh, often quoted. I've actually heard this preached. The earth is going to be destroyed, so it doesn't matter what we do. We can do what we like with the earth. It's going to be destroyed, recreated, and it'll all be fine. God will look after it. But actually, that's a complete misinterpretation of 2 Peter 3. Fire in the Bible is used as a symbol of uh, purifying and refining and testing. It's not just about destruction. And in fact, the parallel verses in that chapter talk about uh, the world being destroyed by the flood. And the world clearly wasn't destroyed by the flood. The, word, the language is destruction. But what he's talking is about is cleansing. The world was cleansed of sin and evil. And God started again by saving Noah and the animals in the ark. So to think that we shouldn't do anything just because the world is going to be destroyed is a complete misconception and a complete misunderstanding of Scripture and should be avoided at all costs. Next slide, please. The other misconception I want to address is the, what salvation is. So in our Western world, we're very individualistic and we tend to think of salvation. It's about me and God, about me being saved, about me going to heaven. It's all about me, which is very much a Western individualist sort of view. And um, as Christopher Wright has pointed out, the second quote on that slide, I'm assuming it's behind me, I can't see it. Um, he says, we tend to start with Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. We start with, we've sinned and therefore we need to be saved. But we sort of skipped Genesis 1 and 2. And that's where I want to go back to. So next slide, please. So the Bible is God's story. It's about God. That's the primary reference of the Bible is to God. And embedded in that story is the earth story. At the beginning of Genesis, it says, God created the heaven and earth. And right in Revelation 21, it says, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The earth story is embedded in God's story in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we have the fall. We have uh, God's people, the people of Israel. Then right at the center of the story, we have Jesus' death and resurrection. And then we have the New Testament people of God. Jesus returns, the new Adam. And then there's the recreation, the new heavens and the new earth. So our story as individuals is embedded in our story as God's people, which is embedded in the story of the earth, which is embedded in the story of God. So you need to look at it in this big picture. If you just think about yourself, you're not seeing all God is about. God's concern is for the whole of his creation, and he will restore his creation when Jesus returns. So let's move on to the next slide. So God has a plan. If I had more time, I would expand on this, but... At the bottom line, the plan is to save the people and the planets. If you read Romans 8, which talks about the sons of God being revealed, or perhaps more, um, more modern terms, the, the uh, children of God being revealed. <laughs> Get away from just men. Um, uh, it also talks about creation itself being set free from slavery at that time. When the children of God are revealed, creation will be set free. And the point of that is that God's plan, as we saw in the previous slide, is to recreate the whole of creation. So he's got a plan not just for um, uh, us as individuals. Salvation for us is really important. I think we need to get saved. We need to see people saved. But God's plan is bigger. That salvation for individuals is included in a larger plan of what he's doing with his creation. So the question to me then is, given that, how then shall we live? Not the next slide yet. 
question. You are all good Christian people. What is Jesus' first commandment? Come on, you can shout it out. What's Jesus' first commandment? Most important commandment. Excellent. Next slide. So Jesus' greatest commandment is to love God. The earth is actually God's. It says that in Psalms. The earth is the Lord's. He sort of lent it to us to look after. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we're asked to look after the earth, or Adam and Eve were, and we are to continue that. And there's two great quotes from um, Christopher Wright, who's an Old Testament theologian. He says, Trashing someone else's property is incompatible to, with any claim to love the other person. If I borrowed Billy's car and I drove it into a brick wall and destroyed it just for the fun of it, not that I'm planning to do that, but you know, I would hardly be his friend. If I borrowed uh, Sarah's fancy new phone, put it on the ground and jumped on it, she probably wouldn't see me as very friendly towards her, very loving. How we are treating God's property, the earth is God's, it's not ours, it belongs to God. How are we treating it? Are we treating it in a way that shows love towards God? And Christopher Wright goes on to say, the treatment of the earth will be a measure of our relationship with the Creator. So what's our relationship with God like, and how does that tie in with how we treat the earth? Okay, you got the first commandment right. What's the second commandment? You should be able to do this, it's easy. I'm giving you a clue. What? Shout out. <laughs> Absolutely, love your neighbour as yourself. Fantastic. Good to see you've got a theologically educated audience. <laughs> right, next slide. Are we on to the next slide? Yeah. It's a question we have to ask ourselves, are our actions causing harm to others on the planet? And the reality is because we live in the Western world, we're rich, we have lots of resources. Those resources require energy. Energy requires uh, carbon dioxide being put into the atmosphere as we currently do energy. So are our carbon dioxide emissions, they're causing global warming, sea level rise, which um, Ivan's already talked about, droughts, floods, environmental refugees. Most of this is impacting the poor, not us. And the Bible has a lot to say about caring for the poor. Go and read the Old Testament prophets. It's full of stuff about caring for the poor. So, um, I mean, big challenges, mm -hmm. um, big issues. I mean, you know, me as an individual, we, we as a community, it feels overwhelming. And like, practically speaking, it doesn't feel like there's a, there's a lot we can do. I mean, what, what can we do practically? Okay, so this is Christianity. Christianity had a, a next slide, yep. Six ways to save the planet. I don't know how easy that is to read. Um, so this was in Christianity in 2018, so this is not my ideas. Um, but at the very top idea, you'll see it says political action. Um, if you write to your MP, um, so I talked to an MP once, and he said if he got one letter from a constituency, he knew it was an issue he should think about. If he got 10 letters, then he knew it was a serious issue and he should really do something about it. And if he got 100 letters, there's probably about 100 people in this room, um, he knew this was a real big issue and he might lose the next election if he didn't take it seriously and include it in what he was thinking about as an MP. So political action, it doesn't mean you have to necessarily go and glue your face to the ground like one protester did the other day. I think that was a little on the extreme side for my taste, but you can write to your MP. You can write to the companies that you buy things from. Um, so a friend of mine, she was teaching her children about plastic, uh, she's a, a junior school teacher, teaching her class about plastics in the ocean. And they said, well, look, we're using these Pritt sticks, we're just plastic. Um, so they said, oh, that's not good, is it? So they decided as a class, I think they were about eight years old, they would write to Mr. Pritt. 
and say, look, we really love using your Pritt sticks to do our work at school, but we're worried that it's adding plastics. And Mr. Pritt, or whoever was there, Mr. Pritt wrote back and said, yes, we're thinking about how we can become more environmentally friendly. So if a bunch of eight-year-olds can write to somebody, I mean, I that was plastics, but you can write to your bank. Are they investing in things that cause more carbon dioxide to go into the atmosphere, or are they investing in uh, environmentally friendly things? So you have power, you as individuals, we as individuals have power to change things. If we can be bothered to take up our pens and write a letter or two. Um, I write to my MP quite a lot. <laughs> I should probably get bored with me. Um, but you can do that. They take notice. And if a hundred of us do it, they definitely take notice. And then the other things are more on the individual level. Um, find an energy supplier who's more green, which is a little tricky at the moment, given what's going on in the energy market. But there are still energy suppliers that are doing green energy. So think about swapping energy supplies. Um, cycle to work. I cycle to work, aren't I? Good. <laughs> Brownie point. So cycle to work instead of driving in the car, if you can do that. Or walk. You don't need to use the car. Um, I can't even read them from here. Staycation. Don't go away. Don't fly. Um, Cut down the amount of meat you eat. That will help with the methane problem. It also helps with people cutting down forests to grow things. The last one is about plastics. I won't bother with that one. Does that help? Good. I have anything to add. I think maybe something that neither of us stressed yet is, is the urgency. So hopefully you've all been hearing about the sort of 1.5 degrees. So we've got to 1.2 degrees. 1.5 degrees is very close. And that isn't just an arbitrary number that's picked out. It's a very, very important number. Because somewhere between 1.5 and 2 degrees, there's about eight tipping points. So the one I know the most about, and maybe you can talk about another one in a second, is Greenland. So Greenland has the equivalent of six meters of sea level rise if, if it all melts. And we think, we're not 100% sure, but we think that if the climate goes above 1.5 degrees, Greenland will entirely melt. It, it won't melt quickly, but, but over the next hundreds to, to thousands of years, it will be completely uh, gone. Uh, another big tipping point that you look at is, is AMOC. I don't know if you want to say something very briefly well, yeah, about um, that. Yeah. So we're interested in the, uh, what's known as the overturning circulation in the North Atlantic. And again, that might be impacted by climate change, which would cause local disruption in terms of storm tracks, um, amount of rainfall, and, and temperatures. Um, one of the misconceptions about temperature, I just want to address because I think most people don't get this, is people say two degree warming. So that means that we'll grow grapes in southern England, have vineyards, and it'll all be balmy. But actually, um, the temperature distribution is not even. The changes in temperature are not even across the planet. Some places are warming, some places are cooling. So my simple example is if, if I cool the northern hemisphere by 6 degrees, and I warm the southern hemisphere by 10 degrees, that's 10 minus 6, 4, simple sum, two hemispheres, so the average temperature rise is 4 divided by 2. So that's a two degree average temperature rise, but if you're in the minus six or the plus 10 bit, your experience of a two degree average temperature will be very different. And in fact, I did have a map, which I didn't put in this uh, slide collection, which shows the distribution of warming across the planet. And it's not even. Some places are warming a lot faster. And actually around the Atlantic, because of what the ocean circulation is doing, it's slightly cooling at the moment. So it's complicated. And don't think that just because it's two degrees on average, we'll all be happy and safe, we won't. But what I wanted to just stress is the urgency. We need to have acted 10 years ago. It's a lot of scientists already think it's too late. I don't think it's too late, but all of us really do need to start taking responsibility now. The next decade is absolutely crucial. 
You know, so some of the work we've done that showed that, you know, if we can restrict temperature to 1.5 degrees, actually by 21, the year 2100, in terms of sea level, it's only about a 20 centimeter saving. But in the long term, it's more than three or four meters of sea level rise we can save if we act in the next decade. So, so the COP conference is absolutely crucial, you know, and yeah, maybe we didn't stress that urgency quite enough. So I haven't got anything else to say. I've got one last slide, I think. So I'd just like us to take a minute or two and just reflect on what we might do. And I think you're going to ask a question. Let's just have a minute quiet. Just think about what you might be able to do or what God might be asking you to do in response because in the end, it's God's planet, not ours. Great. I think Ivan's got a question. <laughs> Do you have any more questions? No, for no, I've finished my, my questions. Do you have any questions? So, so yeah, <laughs> Billy, as a church, <laughs> I, I deliberately wanted to sort of take you by surprise here, but you know, what, what are you doing as a church to tackle this very serious problem? Um, well, only this week, Chris Tuck, who's our new head of operations, uh, and I had a conversation to say this needs to be on our agenda to talk about. So I think at this stage it's, it's been vaguely there. We've, we've tried a few things. We've tried to encourage people to bring their own cups and this, this type of thing. But we do need to look at it. We have a big building that takes a lot of you know, heat to light to electric to keep going. How do we think about that? Um, obviously, we're going to be involved in the development of a new school across the road. How does some of this impact the planning and the design of that building? And so, so it's, I would say at the moment, we're at very early stages, but as I say, we've just put it on the agenda to talk about as an organization, as well as encouraging people individually. So. Can I put you on the spot further? <laughs> <laughs> you know, fair's fair, you asked us questions. Um, as international pioneer leader. Yes. Traveling the world. I know. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, so obviously, um, we've done a, well, we've had two years of not traveling the world, and Pioneer International has grown. And so, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be launching Pioneer Zambia. Over three months ago, we launched Pioneer in Sierra, Sierra Leone. School of Ministries, there's an international ministry. I can't see, where's, is Graham Bauer here? No, he's in Schoeling. Um, so Phil Orchard and Graham and Peter Butt have actually recorded all of the, um, most of the teaching modules on School of Ministries, and that's now multiplying uh, across Africa in particular, but also available in Asia. So I think it will mean that we'll be traveling less, and I think technology has shown us that it's, I mean, being in person is, makes a difference, but things can continue uh, with technology, Zoom calls and WhatsApp groups and everything else has really facilitated and, and the video rate, I think, has been a great thing. So I think it will affect, having said that I am going somewhere soon, but anyway. 
But so, so I have to confess, actually, because having put you on the spot, um, there was a recent study that showed that climate scientists were the worst for jetting <laughs> around the world. So I <laughs> put up my hand. Could I just show one more very quick slide, Vinny? Would you mind just showing the last slide, if that's all right? Who are these lads? They, they were the t yeah, I, I just wanted to end on this, Billy, because, you know, I've done some caving in my life, and it, when these boys got trapped, I, I was glued to the TV, and I thought there was absolutely no possible way those boys would get help. And what I loved was the international effort. They had people come from all over the world. They had sort of doctors from Australia, cave divers from the UK, um, people with amazing pumping technology from the US Army. And it was only when they worked together that they were able to get those boys out. And I think it's the same with the, the sort of climate challenge. I, I, I think it, this is something that, you know, the world is so divisive at the moment, but climate change is something that can really bring us together. And um, so I think we know what the answers are. I just think the next decade is crucial. And someone asked a question, I think it was Graham. Was it Graham? But, on the, on the Facebook, yeah. <coughs> yeah, but about, you know, should, 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 is this just a distraction from the church? But, but I think this isn't, you know, it's, it, I think Jesus, if he, if he was walking on the earth that day, he would be at the very, very center of this movement. And so, yeah, I just wanted to encourage us, and, and as a church, how can we as a community really get together and, you know, start to address some of this and help some of these communities that are being affected by the world? Great. Well, I think, you know, we will be taking it forward organizationally as well as individually and so I think there'll be opportunity over the next months and years that we need to address this so so thank you Ivan thank you Merrick um, they'll be around over coffee if you want to ask them any more penetrating questions and um, or you want to pop it on the Facebook uh, group any question you've got but thank you really helpful Ivan and Merrick thank you.